Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. I never fail to be moved, man, in worship. You guys do a wonderful job of ushering us before the Lord. And uh, man, as mentioned, my name's Gary Grace, and I am the coordinator of the Bethany Center. And then uh, no need to go into the other multi-hats that I wear, but, uh, you know, it's always an honor to be able to get up and to, to just dive into God's Word with God's people. I will say this, that, uh, man, we are so blessed to be welcomed by Passion Church. My wife and I have been coming here now for about four months, I think, and, uh, and we, you know, we've got three little kids that are growing in the Lord in the children's church, and you guys have just really welcomed us with opening arms. Uh, as mentioned, I used to be a pastor uh, in Holiday, Texas, of a little church of, there, and uh, was there for probably about five years, resigned in November of this past year, um, really just have felt God is just pushing me, compelling me to be more involved and, um, and focused on Hope Center. But my heart is always to share the gospel. I've never gotten away from that. I was talking to my buddy the other day, Josh, and he was saying, do you miss pastoring? And I said, you know, I love to get up and just cry with God's people and, uh, and to dive into the word and the scripture. Um, now, do I, I miss all the other stuff? I, I don't know. I'm sure Pastor Steve doesn't encounter any of that with you guys. I'm sure y'all aren't rascals. But uh, anyhow, uh, we are going to be diving into Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Our, our key text is going to be verses 6 and 8. And, and here Paul is, um, he's writing a letter to the church in Colossae. It's not a church that he, he founded or planted. Uh, you know, Paul was a missionary, but this particular church was planted by somebody else. But if you know Paul and you've ever read his letters, he loves all Christians everywhere. And his desire is to make sure that once, once they come to know Jesus, that they're established in him and that they're growing in him. And, and Paul pins on a piece of paper uh, this letter, and his main concern for them is that there's false doctrine ingraining itself into these Christians, into this Christian church, I should say. And so his heart is to combat that and to make sure that nothing derails them. And so he writes this, he says, Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior... Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, firm in your faith. I love that word firm. Another translation says established in your faith. I moved to Oklahoma a year and a half ago. I learned that if you plant a tree that is not established, that this Oklahoma wind will blow it over. I planted 12 trees. I looked outside one day and they were all leaning over. And I thought, wow, you know, and, but, but, but it gives validity to the truth of what they say. Unless the roots are established into the ground, you will blow over when trials come. And, and what Paul is saying here is that you need to be established. You need to be firm in what you believe and what you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And then in verse 7, he says, he gives a warning. He says, be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through empty, deceitful philosophies. Now, that word captivate, 
I, I remember when I was growing up in high school and testosterone started going through my body. I, I learned what beauty was, you know. And, and I, I remember seeing a girl I had a crush on for the very first time. And her beauty did what to me, Scott? It, it captivated me. And, and there was a level of attraction when I looked at her and I thought, wow, it's kind of like a magnet in a junkyard that, that attracts everything besides cast iron. And, and, and it attracted all of us young boys. We, we learned what beauty was and it was attractive and it was captivating. But did you know that you can find the same thing inside of the church with certain teachings and doctrine? And there are certain people who are really, really good at, at oratorial speaking, and they can talk persuasive, and, and it sounds good. There's a level of truth that they present, but in the end, it's kind of like rat poison. 99% of it's good, but that 1% will kill you. And this, is, this was Paul's concern here. He says, don't let these types of teachings, philosophies. Now, what he's talking about there isn't Aristotle and Plato. What he's talking about there is teachings of the world. They're, they're, they're false teachings that you will encounter, and they're empty, and they're deceitful. And they're according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, that, that first verse, Paul says, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want to know who I'm talking to this morning. How many of you have ever had a point in your life where you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Raise your hand. I want to know who I'm talking to. And if you don't have your hand raised, I want you to know I'm after you. <laughs> I'm going to get you by the end of the service. Now, I'm kind of kidding. Kind of. Uh, but, but the reality is, is those of you who have raised your hand and you said, hey, there was a point in my life when I knew I was dead in my trespasses and I cried out to God to save me. I received Jesus as both my Savior and my Lord, my Master. I, I pay allegiance to Him. And here Paul says, though, that when you do that, he explains that it isn't just you quit all of a sudden. It isn't, well, I'm just fine. I got on my hands and I prayed the prayer that Andrew said, and now everything's hunky-dory. No, no, there's, there's a level, there's a burden of responsibility for you as a young Christian that you have in response to what God gave you through his son, Jesus. And, and the responsibility is simply this, is that you would be rooted in him, that you would be built up in him, that you would be firmly established in the person of Jesus Christ and growing in your knowledge of him. That way you can live out an application of wisdom and people who don't know him would look at your life as it's projected on a screen and say, wow. I once knew that person. They were totally wicked and lost and represented darkness. And now when I see their life, man, it's a representation of light and goodness and righteousness. And it blows their mind because it's only something supernatural that could do that. And so our responsibility isn't to behave well. Our responsibility is to love well. And when you love well, you will naturally behave well. And our job, once we become Christians, is to be rooted in him. It's to be established in Jesus. And not just our faith, but the faith. It isn't what you think is right. It is what is right. And it's being established in the faith that you were taught from the beginning. 
And the reason why Paul says this is so that, say that phrase. So that nobody can cheat you. How many of you love to play a game and be cheated? Nobody does, right? <laughs> nobody does that. I, uh, I went to Walmart the other day and bought Battleship. Y'all ever, ever played that? I bought it for my kids because they're getting to where all they want to do is watch Disney Plus, and I'm about tired of Disney Plus. But I'm going to excommunicate Disney. We're not going to get into that right now. But here's what I would say. I went and bought this game, and if you've ever played it, you, you, you raise up the, the little divider there. And, on, and, and your object of the game is to situate your ships in certain little columns and rows. And then your opponent does the same thing. And this little bitty divider is supposed to keep you from cheating and looking at your opponent. And my kids, who is nine and eight, did a great job. They did a really good job with me as the referee. Now what happened is I woke up the next morning and I left and went to work. When I came home... My, my kids said, we played Battleship, Daddy. And I said, oh, yeah? Well, who won? My daughter said, we didn't finish. When we got into it, Levi, I looked over the divider and saw all my ships, and I didn't want to play anymore. He was a cheater, you know? And if you know my daughter, you know, she's really sassy about it. And, and so, but, but nobody likes to play a game where you're cheated. Amen. None of you who are married in here ever stood at the altar and, and Pastor Steve is there and, and you make your vows to your spouse and then you leave to go on this new adventure, right, called your honeymoon. Nobody ever says, man, I really hope that my spouse is a harlot, right? Nobody ever gets all invested into something and you put all the cards on the table and, and you want to be cheated at the end of it, right? That hurts and it wounds you and it demotivates you to be able to be faithful back whenever there's faithlessness in regard to you. Nobody in the room wants to be cheated. And I'll tell you one thing. The thing that I would hate to do is get all the way to the end of my life. I'm 40 years old, about to turn 41. I know you can't tell. There is no receding hairline. It's not there. It's a figment of your imagination. I got about 40 more years left, if the Lord's willing. I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and think, man, I messed that up. I had a misconstrued idea of who God was. I got it all wrong, right? Nobody comes to church Sunday in, Sunday out, worshiping the king, and, and, and you have a misunderstanding of who he is. We don't want that. A.W. Tozer says what you think about God, what you think about him, is the single most important factor in your life. Why? Why would he say that? Why would that be the single most important factor? Because whatever you think about God will shape your behavior. Whatever you think about God will shape your thinking. Whatever you think about God will, will determine how you interact with people in the workplace. Whatever you think about God will determine whether you think you ought to forgive somebody or not. Whatever you think about God is the same measure in which you will live out your life because that's the perspective of who he is in your, in your perspective. And so nobody wants to be cheated that way. And so what Paul is saying here is don't let it happen. 
well, thanks, Paul. We appreciate that. But how do you do that? <laughs> I was thinking about this. I was asking myself, what are some of the, I don't know, the modern day philosophies, empty things that kind of infiltrate themselves into our church? And, and I view this as our church, but I'm also talking about the general church. What are some of the things that we encounter that are philosophies that aren't true? I have a little truth, but in the end, they lie. I was thinking about one. Have you ever heard of a license to sin? It's called licensing. There's this idea that, man, once I become a Christian and I receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, man, I'm forgiven, right? Amen? You are. You're forgiven. But, but there's this aspect, but now that I, I'm forgiven, it's kind of like uh, I have a get-out-of-jail-free card anytime I want. And so I can live however I want, and I can continue to live a habitual lifestyle of sin because what? Because, oh, Jesus, his blood covers me. And some people come to the cross, and they think that way. They think, well, you know, they treat the blood of the covenant as a cheap thing. And, and they'll use scripture, too. They'll say Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither angels nor demons Neither things in the past nor things in the present or the, or the future. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Is that true? Amen. It is true, but not to the extent where you don't have a heart that is contrite before him. Not to the extent where you're proud and you can just exercise a lifestyle of sin before a holy and righteous and pure God. And, 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 and they forget, that's Romans 8, but Romans 6, two chapters prior to that, says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid, how can you who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that as many who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, and just as God raised Jesus from the grave, so he raises you to a new life. And so there's this aspect, man, that, that is being taught in a lot of churches that now that you're saved, you can just live however you want. And I don't know about you, but I can't even do that with my wife, much less a holy God. Now that I'm married to my wife, she can't get out of that, right? There's a contract. It's called, it's called a covenant that we made with one another. Well, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, now you've entered into a covenant. And you can't get out of it, and he won't get out of it. But it doesn't mean you can run around on him. It doesn't mean you can commit adultery on him. It doesn't mean you can play the harlot on God just because you're in a covenantal relationship and you know he's faithful never to leave you or forsake you. Well, then you don't leave him or forsake him either. But you follow him in love. And out of that love relationship, you obey him and you behave well and you, you act in righteousness and you handle your finances in an honorable way and you interact with people in a loving way. And you forgive people who who oppress you and talk bad about you and persecute you and slander you. You don't have your own rights anymore because you're in a covenantal relationship with him. That's, that's one teaching. Another teaching I was thinking about was the, the name and claim it. Oh, man, it's almost like, man, I, I walked the other day by a car. There's a lot of Lamborghinis in Oklahoma City. And I thought, you know, I'm in a midlife crisis right now. I want a Lamborghini or, or a Harley or something. I can't go over to that and just say, in the name of Jesus, 
I want this. Do you know you just broke the 10th commandment? <laughs> Come on now. Thou shalt not covet or envy somebody else's property or their wife or their husband. And what we'll do a lot of times is we'll see the possessions and the promises of the world and what everybody seeks in the world. And we'll go over there in the name of Santa Claus because that's, that's synonymous with Jesus, right? Wrong. In the name of Jesus, we'll go over there and lay hands on something and say, man, this is mine. I have not because I ask not. Quoting scripture all the way down the road of lies. Oh, come on now. Yeah. And, and I think, man, that, that's attractive. That's captivating, isn't it? And we love it because it's like the shiny hook that attracts us. And in the end, what does it do? It sinks us. It hurts us. It's, it's the bait of Satan, the little G God of the world, and uses the things of the world, the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life to draw us in. It's captivating like the beauty of a teenager who looks at a woman the first time or a man the first time and says, wow. And these teachings, man, they, they draw us in. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's combating that. I was thinking about another teaching. It's called... Uh, the absence of suffering. It's this idea that, man, when I come to Jesus, woo, Palomino horses, green pastures, new sunrises, new sunsets, everything's beautiful and everything's grand because I gave my life to Jesus. No more problems. There's going to be an absence of suffering, right? <laughs> and yet, we forget what Jesus said. Jesus said, in this world, you will have problems. But behold, I've overcome the world. He says, if they hated you, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. And, and, and so we, sometimes we come to the cross, we say, man, everything's going to get really, really good now that I know Jesus. All my legal problems are going to go away. Can I tell you something? There's some judges who think differently. <laughs> so uh, sometimes we'll say all my marriage problems are going to go away now that I've given my life to Jesus this is what she's been praying for all, all our marriage surely everything's going to be grand and that's just not how it happens sometimes is it you see sometimes when you come to Jesus that's actually when the furnace begins to be turned up sometimes Satan knows that if you come with false pretense thinking that everything's going to just get better just because you name Jesus as your Lord and Savior you could be desperately wrong you say how could you say that go read Job though he slay me I will praise him is what Job said <laughs> it was not conditional Another psalm says, the Lord giveth, and he, I think it's Job said, he giveth and he what? And he takes away the half-brother of Jesus. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus? The half-brother of Jesus wrote the book of James and he said what? Count it all joy when you go through various trials. In other words, you're going to go through the mire and the muck. You're going to have times of suffering. You're going to be in the crucible. You're going to be squeezed. And whatever comes out of you when you're squeezed is who you are. You'll ooze it out of you. And, and even when you're suffering, even when you're in times of mourning, that is when you can exercise faithfulness to God and show the world, man, I love Jesus in spite of the suffering. You think suffering won't come your way? Ask 10 out of the 12 disciples. They all died martyrs' death. And you say, what happened to old John boy? Well, they poured hot tar, tar on him. He was just a tough boy. He didn't die. 
but he was scarred and he was left on an island called Patmos and deserted there. You can ask the thousands of Christians who lined the Roman streets in the reign of Nero. The thousands of Christians who were tossed into a lion's den. You can ask you can ask them. You can ask all the Christians that live outside of North America right now who are dying at the hands of Islamic radicals. You see, sometimes when you come to Jesus, the furnace gets cranked up. And there's all types, and I, I could go on and I could go on and on about false, empty, deceitful philosophies that we encounter today. But I don't have the time. But what I do want to ask you is this, is... My question today is, how do you identify, let's say you're a new Christian, you say, Gary, okay, that, I get it, but how do I d identify whether something's true or whether something's false? Now, I, I've done this with some of you before, so if you know the answer to this, don't, uh, don't give it away, but do either one of you gentlemen right here, if, if this was a counterfeit bill, do either one of y'all know how the federal government determines? I'm just going to ask you, okay? Because you look sleepy, so I'm going to wake you up. <laughs> Don't think I won't pick on you. I got little bibles back here. I'll throw at y'all if y'all sleep on me. If this was a potential counterfeit bill, you know what that means, right? It's not the real thing. If, if this was a potential counterfeit bill, how do you determine whether it's counterfeit or it's the real thing? Yeah, yeah, you heard what he said. He said he'd put it up in the light and he'd look for a little strip in it. You're right? Isn't that what a lot of people do? As if the manufacturer of a counterfeit bill couldn't put a little strip in a piece of paper. Right? You willing to sell something for 50 grand, they give you a suitcase of 50 grand, you willing to walk away and say, you know what, I'm satisfied. You have little strips in your bill, right? That's what we think. Guess again. Uh, what did somebody say? Don't, if you already told you this, you can't cheat. I don't like to be cheated. What do you think? Use the marker. Who said that? I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> so, so if you sold me a lawnmower... And you said, I'm going to give you $50,000 for that lawnmower. I'm going to draw with a magic marker to determine whether it's real or not? No. No, no, no. Here's how the federal government determines whether or not this bill is real or fake. They take out the real deal. And if this is a real bill, what they'll do is they'll line it up They'll line up the potential counterfeit with the real thing and they'll scrutinize it up against the real thing. They'll examine every little nook, every little drawing, every little print. They'll examine the paper. They'll examine the strip, yes. But in, in, in addition to all of that, they will scrutinize the entire thing with the authentic thing. And you want to know why a lot of people get derailed in their faith? Because they don't know the authentic thing. And I hate how this sounds. We don't like to use the word ignorant. But we're ignorant of the real thing. We're ignorant of the word of God. We're ignorant of the plumb line. We're ignorant of what points north. 
We're ignorant of the standard that God has given us in the full revelation of his word. It's the real deal. Paul says this to his protege in 2 Timothy chapter, I think, 3, verse 16. He says that all scripture is inspired by God. I really like how the translation of the Greek says that it's God breathe. It's God breathe. You say, what does that mean? Well, of course, 40 men wrote it over the course of 1,600 years. And people will say, well, doesn't that mean it's not real? No, that, that gives validity that it is real. And, and you say, how's that? Because you're telling me that fallible men can write an infallible book, right? No way. See, see, the Bible is a Bible that has no errors and it has no mistakes. And you say, how do you know that? Because it's the longing, longest printed piece of literature in the world. It is the number one selling book in the world. And, and atheists and agnostics have tried to scrutinize it. They have tried to, to build a case against its validity and its truth. And all through the ages, not hundreds, but thousands of years, it has stood the test of time. And so you're telling me that fallible men have wrote a book that is incomparable to any other book and it has no mistakes in it. I'm going to tell you something. A supernatural God does that. He breathed those words onto that paper and he used imperfect men to write a perfect book. Wow. And then Paul says this. He says every scripture not only is inspired by God, but check this out, that it has certain qualities and properties about it that are useful. Number one, it's useful for teaching. It's useful for teaching. Now, that just means that it's going to teach you what is right when you don't know what is right. So if you don't know how to handle your finances, the Word of God can teach you how to handle your finances. If you don't know how to uh, be a healthy spouse in a marriage, the Word of God can teach you how to do that. If you don't know how to run a business with good ethics and, and, and be a quality guy in the business world, the Word of God can what? Teach you how to do that. But it's also not just useful for teaching, but it's useful for reproof. You say, what does that word mean? That is a legal term that they use in the courtroom. Do you know that? In, in the Greek, it's... It, it literally means this, is that when somebody gets up and they make a false testimony in a courtroom, what they'll do is they'll bring in evidence, and that evidence will prove whether or not that testimony is true or not. And so the Word of God has the ability to take whatever is false, whatever is not reality, and it can drag it kicking and screaming into the light and expose it and rebuttal it and bring it to the truth. But it's also useful for correcting. Now, I think that I happen to have a belief on this. I think a lot of people don't want to read the Word of God because they don't want to be corrected by the Word of God. But it has that quality about it. And not only that, but it's useful for training in righteousness so that the person may be dedicated to God and be capable and equipped for every good work. So here's, here's the breakdown of it. The Word of God is profitable to teach you the right thing. The Word of God is useful to teach you what is wrong. And the Word of God is useful to teach you how to get it right. And the Word of God is useful to teach you how to keep it right. 
And so you never have to be intimidated or worried about false doctrines or anything else. Because what? Because you got the real thing. And I got news for you. I only know a few authors. I only know a few. But the one author I do know wrote the number one selling book in the world. And he's called the Holy Spirit. And guess where he lives? I don't know about you. He don't live in this man-made lumber here. He lives right here. And he teaches me truth, and he convicts me of truth, and he corrects me, and he instructs me, and he helps me to live out my life in an honorable way before God. Why? So that we can identify empty and deceitful philosophies of the world, the elemental teachings of the world, so that we can be rooted in him and built up in him and established in him. I tell you what, I was blown away this past week. I went to a funeral that I've never seen a funeral like that a day in my life. It was awesome. And uh, I didn't know Danny well, Esther. But I, what I do know about him is he left this earth well. And you say, how do you know that? Richest man I've ever met. I went home. I turned off Disney+. Plus. I bought Battleship because of Danny Nix. When I, when I was at that funeral sitting in the back and I looked up there and I saw that family of worshipers in a time where people shake their fist at God, these people were praising God. I was like, what? If only I can get Ava and Levi and Ezra saved. That's all I got to do. That's all I want to do right now. And that was really my heart. I really wanted to leave work, and I wanted to just go home and buy Battleship, excommunicate Disney+, Plus, and really just focus on raising my kids. All I want to tell you is, man, what a life lived. What a legacy. You ever been to a funeral, though? And you look up and you see all the beautiful arrangement of flowers. It was beautiful. Some flowers are cut flowers. Other flowers are planter box flowers. And, and most florists, they love the cut flowers because you can do more of an elaborate splash of colors and beauty. Uh, the planter box flowers, they're nice and they're pretty, but they're not as elaborate. They're not as showy. But what will happen is, is after the funeral, when you take the flowers home, the cut flowers, after about six weeks, begin to wither. And they begin to lose their petals. But the planter flowers, they don't do that. They stay alive as long as you give them some water. And here's the reason why. Both of those plants have fruit on them, right? Both of those plants say, look at me. I'm colorful. I'm beautiful. But the only plant that lasts is the plant that has roots. And some of you don't need to miss this. Some of you have shallow roots or no roots at all. And some of you have deep roots. And you say, why would you say that to us? We all want the deep roots, Gary. Because it's just the fact of the matter. Jesus says many will follow, many will be called, and few will choose me or follow me. Jesus says the road to destruction is broad, the road to him is narrow. He tells a story about a farmer who sows seed, some falls in beaten path, some falls in shallow, some falls in the good soil, four types of soil. The truth of the matter is, not everybody in here, not all of us will see each other in heaven. Some of us are skating by. We're pretending. We're like the cut flowers. And we have no root. And what Paul tells them, he says, 
if then you have received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you've accepted him, it don't stop there. From there, you got to dig down roots. You got to be built up in him. You got to be firmly established in him so that what? So that you don't fall away. So that you don't wither. So that you don't drop your petals. And you say, how do you do that? Paul, Paul said this. He said to Timothy, he said, be diligent to show thyself approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. See, you got to become a lover of God's word. Joshua 1.8 says, this book of the law shall not depart from your lips, but you shall meditate in it day and night. I love the word meditation. It's translated in the Greek as memorize. It's this idea I think about, you know, if a satellite was over the Pacific Ocean and there was a John boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I think that's what God wants us to do in his word. He wants us to just bask in it. He wants us to be in the vastness of his word and to meditate on it, not 15 minutes in the morning, not 15 minutes at night, but weave it through your entire day. When you rise up, you're meditating on it. Man, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it. When you walk by the way and you see your children dishonoring their mother you begin to quote son I want it to go well for you honor thy mother and thy father and if you don't I'm just kidding but but it's taking God with you throughout the entire day and, and I started thinking about how can I do this how can I make sure that the word of God is in my heart because I don't want to just preach to you I, I can't give you something I don't have today and I told somebody earlier, I said, I'm nervous. And somebody said, well, haven't you done this before? And I said, yeah, but I'm not nervous because I'm intimidated by you. I'm nervous because there's a holy God watching me preach his truth. And if I get it wrong, I'm in trouble. I'm not nervous because of that. I'm nervous because I want to honor God and I want to love God and I want to follow God. And I want to be passionate all the time for God. And so what I've done, I bought an iPad. And I post it up in my, in my little office. And, and when, when I'm stressed out or when I'm, I'm in a hurry, I stop and I look over. And I've got a little highlighted marker that I can do on this. And I, and I meditate on God's word. I memorize God's word. Why? For you? So that I can quote it up here? No. Because when you're in trouble and the tempter comes to deceive you, you can't pull out your little Bible. You better have it in your heart. You better have it living inside of you. Psalms 119.11 says, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We, we don't hide his word in our heart because it makes us feel good or because we want other people to know how pious or righteous or holy we are. We do it because we know sin is offensive to him and I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to hurt him. And so I meditate on it day and night. I bask in it. I float in it. I meditate in it. I, me I memorize it. And I long to quote it back to him because I know that if I, if I remind, as if I could remind God of something, but if I could quote it to him, he says, oh yeah, I, I, I'm faithful to that word. I'm faithful to that promise. And he will deliver me from the enemy. He will deliver me from times of temptation. When I'm grieving and I'm mourning and I'm hurting, he will deliver me from that pain and he will surround me with his comfort. He'll put his holy host around me and his angels and he'll protect me in times when I'm warring in my soul and in my spirit. He, he revives me. 
He sustains me. And he's my refuge and my rock. And the only way he is that is if you don't have a misconstrued idea of who he is. Because again, what you think about God is what? Single most important factor in your life. You meditate on the word of God and you're careful to obey it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I promise I'm done. I'm done. But I want to share something. Catherine, you can come up. I want to share something. God wants you to love him by loving his word. And if you love his word, you'll understand who he is. And in understanding who he is, you don't have to be derailed from anything else, from empty, deceitful philosophies or anything like that. Many of you in here, you don't know my background or why I'm passionate about Hope Center. I used to be a junkie. Uh, I started using methamphetamines when I was 17. I know you can't tell. I still got all my teeth. I'm, I'm kind of joking. These are false. Here's the point I'm trying to make. I was a horrible person, made horrible decisions in my life. And one day when I was 27 years old, I cried out to God to save me. And when I was growing up, I never had a church background. I never, I never heard preachers preach. I never read the word of God. But when I gave my life to Jesus, I didn't have any foundation to go off of. I simply said, God, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, I don't want to live like this. I want you to save me. You know what God did two days later? He threw me in prison. <laughs> what kind of deal is this? But he threw me in prison because he knew that I wouldn't be able to quit on my own. And so he took me and he plucked me out of darkness and he put me in a place where he could speak to me and he could reveal himself to me. And I remember going to the county first before I went to the prison and I'm in the county jail and I have a Bible and I start reading it for the very first time. And the day I open the Bible, a jailer walks by and he says, Grace, pack your things. You're catching chain. That just means you're going to prison. And if you've never been to prison, here's what, here's what you gotta understand. You can't take anything with you except for a pair of white boxers and maybe a white t-shirt and a Bible if you have one. And I remember sitting on that bunk that day. <sighs> Second prayer of my life. I said, God, I'm not ready. But if I gotta go, I only prayer is that I could have your word. And I promise God, if you give me your word, I'll read it. I'll learn who you are. And I will never stop reading it. And I got up and I felt ready to go. They took us. There was 55 men that day that caught chain. They, they put handcuffs on our wrist, handcuffs on our, on our ankles, and actually tied us together in a single file line. We're, we're moving like this, the old chain gang. And we're going to a sardine can called a van. And there's multiple vans and they put us all in those vans. And they drive us to the prison. It was on a Friday, there's 55 of us. Remember getting to the prison and the jailer was talking to us. He said, we're gonna get you in tonight, but the prison's full. 
and we're in the middle of a shift change. And, and the group of guys that check you in has to check your property, and we don't have time for that. So what we're going to do is we're going to get you bedded down for tonight, but you're not going to get your property until the next week. And you want to talk about just deflated. That measure of faith that I had just withered away. My third prayer is, God, you ain't real. The only thing I asked for was your word. And you can't even do that. You can't even deliver that. The jailer called out 38 people. They went to a part of the prison. I never saw them again. That left 17 of us standing there that day. I was one of the 17. We went into a day room, multi-tiered. A day room is just has little, uh, looks like little breakfast tables, but they're stainless steel mounted to the floor. And then there was a flight of stairs that went up to the top tier. And on the top tier, there were three cells. Each cell could hold eight men. One of the cells already had seven men from the prison that were in there. So exactly room for 17 of us. The jailer called out eight names. Those eight men went up. They filled up the first cell. The door was closed. That leaves, you got nine. The jailer calls out eight more guys. They go up the flight of stairs. They go into the second cell. There, standing on that day room floor with only me left, my little shaved head, my rolled up mat, no property, no Bible. He calls out grace. I walk up the flight of stairs. I walk into that third cell. I unroll my mat, hop up on my bunk. I kid you not, I looked, and on seven bunks, were seven different Bibles. And as far as I know, out of 55 men there that day, Gary Grace was the only one that had access to the Bible. I'd be willing to bet you I was the only one that prayed for one. And you say, well, why do you memorize it? Why do you love it? Because God was telling me right then, Gary, if you'll seek me, you'll find me. And I'll unveil myself to you, and I'll love you. I've never, ever had to have a preacher teach me what is right and wrong because I got a God who lives in me that will teach me right and wrong. Don't get me wrong. Love your preachers. They're presenting the Word of God. But if you're being spoon-fed... If you go all week and the only time you open up the Word of God, you're missing it. There's such joy. There's such richness. When you read a passage and the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you just melt underneath the umbrella of His protection. And you can feel His presence enter into the room and wrap around you. You can stand in the face of enemies, in the face of trials and darkness, because the Word of God lives in you. Man, if you don't know that kind of experience with God, what I want to do is I want to take a time right now, right where you're seated. Don't commit to God if you're not willing to carry it out. But here's what I want to, I want to guarantee you, that if you'll commit to weave Him in throughout the entire day, meditate on His Word, you'll have a breakthrough. You'll experience God in a way you never have. I know that because I experienced it.
I want to take a moment and I want to open the altar. You can sit in your chair. You can come up here. There'll be a prayer team. We'll do all that. But what I want to do, if don't come to this altar unless you're ready to make a commitment and say, you know what? I've been running from the Word of God. I haven't sat at the table and feasted on the Word of God in a long time. I don't do it regularly, Gary. And I want to commit today where I'm going to seek the Word of God. I'm going to make a commitment in, in the month of June, at least for this next six months. I'm just going to give it all I got. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to read the Word. And when I'm on my lunch break, I'm going to read the Word. And when I come home from dinner and, and, and my kids are wrapped around, instead of watching TV, I'm going to read the Bible to them. And when I go to bed that night, I'm going to meditate on what I read. And I'm going to be overflowing with thankfulness. And I'm going to love Jesus with everything. I got and I'm not going to depend on Pastor Steve I'm not going to depend on Pastor Bob I'm not going to depend on Pastor Gary but I'm going to learn who you are through my own seeking of who you are and God I want you to teach me I want you to unveil yourself to me bow your heads and come forth when you're ready Father we come to you Lord with just hearts Lord, we fail you every day, but your mercies are new every day. And I pray right now, God, that you would just begin to stir in anybody in here. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.